1 Peter chapter 2, thank you, 13 to 4 verse 19, my understanding. So it's a decent haul. Um, yeah, let's get stuck into it. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God, honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hauled the insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughter, daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as, your life, as, your life, as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue with evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Who is going to harm you if you are easy to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring to you God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, in who, uh, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but alive according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, Love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in, his, in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all, in all things God might be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should, do, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and it begins with us. What will the over outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And it is hard for the righteous to be saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and can continue to do good. I hope you've recovered from the competition last night. That's right. <laughs> Take away the chocolates. <laughs> uh, as we get into it, you might like to open up your Bible, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, and starting at verse 13. It was a long chunk that was read for us, and we obviously don't have time to explore everything that's in there. Uh, but I wanted to read that section because there's a theme that draws it all together, and I'm going to focus on that theme, uh, which is that God has saved us to live good lives. So we're going to draw out that theme in 1 Peter 2, 3, and 4. Uh, which means we won't have time to look at everything there, but we'll be looking at that. Uh, there's a, an outline in the booklet, uh, which will give you a sense of where we're headed. That's on page 12, talk three, new life. And I'm going to pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great grace and mercy, you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us and waiting to be revealed at the time when Jesus comes. And we thank you that in the meantime, you have given us meaning and purpose in our lives. That you haven't just saved us from sin and death, but you've also saved us for a life of obedience to you. And so we pray this morning as we listen to your word to us through the Apostle Peter, that you would open our eyes and give us a vision of the life to which you call us and strengthen us by your spirit so that we can go from here to live it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me read to you a blurb from Amazon.com. I'm not really advertising the book, but this is for one of the best-selling Christian books in 2017. It's Rob Dreyer's The Benedict Option. Perhaps you've heard of it. In this controversial bestseller, The Benedict Option, Rod Dreyer calls on American Christians to prepare for the coming dark age by embracing an ancient Christian way of life. From the inside, the blurb continues, American churches have been hollowed out by the departure of young people and by an insipid pseudo-Christianity. From the outside, they're beset by challenges to religious liberty in a rapidly secularising culture. Keeping Hillary Clinton out of the White House may have brought a brief reprieve from the state's assault, but it will not stop the West's slide into decadence and dissolution. It's reading like a book blurb, right? It's quite sensational, but you can see the point. Rob Dreyer, Rod Dreyer argues that the way forward is actually the way back, all the way back to St. Benedict of Nursia, this 6th century monk, horrified by the moral chaos following Rome's fall, retreated to the forest and created a new way of life for Christians. He built enduring communities based on principles of order, hospitality, stability and prayer. His spiritual centres of hope were strongholds of light throughout the Dark Ages and saved not just Christianity but Western civilization. Today, a new form of barbarism reigns. Many believers are blind to it and their churches are too weak to resist. Politics offers little help in this spiritual crisis. What is needed is the Benedict Option. 
a strategy that draws on the authority of scripture and the wisdom of the ancient church. The goal is to embrace exile from mainstream culture and construct a resilient alternative community. These are the days for building strong arcs for the long journey across the sea of night. Stirring stuff, isn't it? Uh, and very American. <laughs> what do you think? Drea there paints a picture in which there really are only two options, as he sees it, for a church under fire. There's compromise with the world, uh, which as Drea looks out on the American church, he thinks has, is a major problem for our brothers and sisters there, that they've compromised with the values of the world around them. And so the church is being eaten up from within because they've given way uh, to the values of the world. He won't have that. And so he poses another option. Did you catch it? Retreat, run away, uh, go to the hills, go to the forests, build your arcs, build a counterculture, withdraw from the culture, embrace exile away, and that's how we'll survive. We've been seeing that as we read through Peter's letter to the churches in Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and Pontus, that he addresses them as strangers and exiles. So is this what he means? Are the options really only compromise or retreat? Well, I think the good news that God has for us in 1 Peter today is that God in Jesus shows us, in fact, a better way, a third way, a way of more positive, engaged, proactive engagement with the culture. Neither compromise nor retreat, but doing good, following in Jesus' steps. And trusting that just as when he was persecuted and killed, God the Father raised him up, so our Heavenly Father will care for us as we follow in his steps. And so I want you to notice just two things in this passage, really, that God has saved us for the good life and he's saved us to point people to the one who truly is good. So let's look first at how God has saved us for the good life. Uh, and I mentioned briefly in question time yesterday that the message of the Bible is crystal clear on this. All the way through, the pattern that's repeated time and time and time again is that God saves his people from slavery to the freedom of life in obedience to him. Think about the Israelites as they were slaves in Egypt, languishing under the thumb of Pharaoh as he commanded them to make bricks and more bricks for his building projects. And they cried out to God and God with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm came down to them and heard their cries, and rescued them, and brought them out from Egypt, and struck Pharaoh, and brought them to the edge of the Red Sea. And there's that beautiful passage in Exodus chapter 14, where there they are stuck at the edge of the Red Sea, with Pharaoh's army bearing down on them from behind, and the waters of the Red Sea in front of them, and they panic. They want to go back to Egypt. They complain to Moses. And the Lord gives Moses a word there in Exodus 14, 14. He says, don't fear. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And it's crystal clear that it is God who is saving the Israelites out of Egypt. That they are not contributing one iota to their own salvation. And so God brings them through the Red Sea and he brings them through the wilderness and he brings them to, the, to Mount Sinai to himself and he says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, Exodus 19. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now obey my voice and he gives them the Ten Commandments. 
And you see the pattern there? They've been saved from slavery under Pharaoh, but they've been saved for a new life of obedience to the Lord. It was the same when they came to the edge of the promised land, wasn't it? Uh, And they faced the mighty fortress of Jericho and the people are afraid and they're wondering how on earth are we going to conquer the land that God has promised us. And it's God who appears, or the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua there in Joshua chapter 6 and gives him instructions about how they are to conquer this new land which don't involve them taking even one sword from its sheath or one arrow from its quiver but involve them instead trusting the Lord because it's the Lord who will fight for them and win their battles. And they follow his instructions and they march around the city and the walls crumble, you know the story. And it's crystal clear that it's God who has saved them. And they haven't contributed one iota to the salvation that God has wrought for them. And yet then God brings them into the promised land and they renew the covenant with him And he calls them to obey. You see, again, they've been saved from slavery, but for a new life of obedience to the Lord. Or you come further forward again when the people have been sent into exile in Babylon because of their sin. They've been captured by Nebuchadnezzar. The temple has been destroyed. The people have been taken off. They're there for 70 years. And they cry out to the Lord. And God raises up Cyrus, the Persian, to come and defeat the Babylonians and set the exiles free and send them home. And again, it's crystal clear they haven't contributed one iota to their own salvation. Time and time and time again, it is the Lord who saves them. And yet, as they come back to the promised land, under Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, God calls them again to new obedience to him in the land. And it's the same for us, isn't it? What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to live until God made us alive in Christ. We all know that dead people can't do much. In fact, can't do anything. And that's Paul's point there. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's no way that you could have contributed to your own salvation. And yet, then in that very same passage, Paul says God has saved you, created you for good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Uh, This is all the way through the Bible, time and time again. It is God who saves us by his power because of his grace. And yet, time and time again, God calls his people to trust him and obey. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. And so here in Peter, uh, we see exactly the same pattern again. You've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, a birth to which you did not contribute, a new life which is yours as a pure gift. And yet the God who saves us without our good works calls on us to live good lives for his glory. This is all the way through Peter here. Let me just pull out some of the verses for you. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Chapter 2, verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Chapter 2, verse 20. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. 
Chapter 3, verse 6, speaking to wives, giving the example of Sarah, who obeyed her husband and called him Lord, uh, speaking to wives, you are her daughters if you do what is right, or actually, it's exactly the same word again, if you do what is good and do not give way to fear. Or chapter 3, verse 10, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. Chapter 3, verse 13, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Chapter 3, verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then the conclusion of the whole section drives the point home. So then, those who suffer according to God's will, chapter 4, verse 19, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do... You know what's coming by now, don't you? <laughs> Peter has been on and on and on about this. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 times in these three chapters. You've been saved not by your good works, by God's grace, and yet you're saved for good works. This is the shape of the Christian life. And so if you ask Peter what we're saved by, he will say, by God's mercy. If you ask him what we're saved from, he'll say from sin and death, from the futile ways handed down from our ancestors. And if you ask him what we're saved for, he'll say we're saved for good works, good lives for God's glory. John Wesley, the great evangelist and hymn writer, we, we know some of his hymns summarised it well in a little motto he had for himself. Do all the good you can, to all the people you can, in all the ways you can, as long as ever you can. I think that captures the vision that Peter has here for the Christian life. And so we want to press further, don't we, and ask Peter some questions like, what does this good life look like? What's the shape of it? What are the characteristics of it? How do you know when you're living in line with the good life that God has called you to? Well, Peter gives us three words, I think. Submission, obedience, and love. So let's have a brief look at each of those. The first one is introduced right after chapter 2, verse 12, where uh, Peter has called us to live such good lives among the pagans. And we get a general principle. Chapter 2, verse 13 Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. A key part of the good life to which God calls us is submission to authorities. How do you feel about that? We don't like it, do we? I think it's pretty deep in the Australian psyche. Maybe it's our convict heritage or something like that. Or maybe it's just our sinful human psyche. That we like to be masters of our own destiny. We don't like this idea of submitting to authorities. And yet submission is good. It's part of the good life to which God calls us. Hear God's word. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human authority. And so we're called to submit in the next little section there to governments. Verse 13, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and who commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, what good? Submitting to the authorities. You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. And we're called to submit not only to governments but also to masters. Not that any of us are slaves like the Christians to whom some of which Peter was writing to were slaves. 
but many of us are employees or find ourselves in relationships where there's somebody in authority over us who is not a government authority. Uh, and so although that's not slavery by any stretch, there is, it is like it in some ways. And so this word applies to us as well, verse 18. Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And we're called to submit not only to governments and to masters, but also to husbands. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives in the same way. Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. This is a difficult topic for us, isn't it? I, I, I think we don't like to think about and talk about submission in Australian culture. And perhaps we find it difficult even in the church. And so I think it's important that we need to be clear what submission does not mean. Submission does not mean that the person in authority is better than you or more dignified than you or more valuable than you or more human than you or has more worth than you. Uh, we're familiar with that when we think about parents and children's, right? children, right? It's very clear that children are of equal dignity and value and worth as their parents. They're made in the image of God in exactly the same way as their parents are. Uh, they're worthy of respect in exactly the same way as their parents are, and yet there's an ordered relationship there where we naturally and rightly expect children to obey their parents. Not because the parents are better people, but because God has established an ordered relationship. I like to think about it like that with my boss at work as well. Perhaps you do as well. It, 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 I submit to him and follow his lead not because he is of more e a dignity and worth than I am, although he's a wonderful guy, <laughs> but I submit to him because God has placed me in an ordered relationship under him. It's an, author an authority structure that God has established. And so submission does not mean that the one in authority is better than you or more dignified than you. Submission also does not mean becoming a doormat, checking your brains out at the door, uncritically accepting whatever the one in authority says. No, on the contrary, good authorities will welcome criticism. Good authorities will welcome contributions from the people they are leading. Good authorities will seek it out and call for it. Now, we don't always have good authorities to which to submit, but that model of what a good authority uh, how a good authority operates reminds us that submission does not mean sit down and shut up. Submission does not mean checking your brains out at the door. You can submit and still actively engage in a conversation with the person whom God has put in authority over you. And third, submission does not mean putting up with abuse. This is important. It's sad but true that all too often those in authority use their authority to abuse those for whom they're meant to be caring and protecting. And when they do that, submission does not mean putting up with that abuse because those authorities are answerable to God who has placed them in authority. And so it's right to complain and to protest and to take whatever steps are necessary to stop the abuse. So submission doesn't mean that the one in authority is better than you. Submission doesn't mean checking your brains out of the door. Submission doesn't mean putting up with abuse so what does it mean? Well, it means willingly ordering yourself under the one God has put in authority over you in a way that's appropriate to the relationship. In the case of governments, that's going to mean obeying their laws. Yes, including the speed on the roads. <laughs> in the case of masters, it means supporting their initiatives, 
In the case of husbands, it means following their lead. Of course, there sometimes comes a point where the one in authority leads you to sin, where the one in authority commands you or entices you or encourages you to do something which is clearly against God's word. And, and at that point, like the apostles in Jerusalem, we must obey God rather than men. But I think for the most part, in God's kindness, that's the exception rather than the rule, isn't it? It's fairly rare that those in authority, at least in the situation that we find ourselves, force us to sin. And so the rule stands. Chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves to the, for the Lord's sake to every human authority. This is a key part of the good life to which God calls us. It's important to notice that we're called to submit for the Lord's sake. You see that? It's because the Lord has ordered his world. And therefore, in submitting to the authorities that he's put in place, we're actually submitting to him, trusting that life is best when we live according to his design. And the flip side of all of this, of course, is that when God puts you in authority over someone else, you become God's representative. And so you need to provide the kind of proactive, loving care and leadership that, pro that reflects God's proactive, loving care and leadership for his people. Peter doesn't address the governors and the masters here and my only guess is that's because none of the Christians in his communities were governors or masters. But he does address husbands. And I think this gives us the pattern for Christians in authority in every sphere of life. Chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands and Christians in any kind of leadership role, be considerate of those you are called to lead. Show them respect. There's the pattern. And don't think for a second that the leadership role that God has given you makes you better than them. Husbands, with your wives, remember that she is in every way your equal. Equal in dignity. Equal in destiny. Uh, that's what Peter says here. She is a co-heir with you with God's gift of life. The presents waiting up there in the, in the, in the Christmas cupboard uh, are for you as well as her, for her as well as you. And so, husband, it's your job to be on the front foot with your family, thinking about the needs of your wife and your children, taking the initiative towards your wife and your children for their good, taking the lead by thinking about their needs. That's the kind of pattern for Christian authority uh, that we get here from Peter modelled, of course, ultimately on the leadership of the Lord Jesus. So that's the first part of the good life, and we've spent a little bit more time on that than we will on the others. We're called to live good lives among the pagans, and that means submitting to authorities. But there's more, of course. There's also obedience. I'm looking at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Again, our sinful selves don't like this idea, do we, of living according to God's will. It may sound restrictive. Our sinful selves want to live according to our own will. And in fact, we wanted to do that from the beginning, haven't we? Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, protesting against God's revealed will, breaking his clear law, 
wanting to assert their own autonomy. No, thanks, God, I'll do it my own way without you. I'll make up the rules for myself. That's humanity in sin from the day dot down to the present. But when God saves you, part of what you begin to learn is that there's a wonderful freedom in living according to God's will. There's a wonderful freedom in living according to our Creator's design. Some of our kids are just starting to learn this when it comes to toys. One of them got a, a drone for Christmas, those little flying drone things. It says clearly on the packet in the instructions, do not fly over water. <laughs> but uh, within about 15 minutes, the drone was flying over a pool. And, well, you know what happened next. <laughs> We're learning slowly, our kids in our family, that toys work best when you operate them according to the maker's instructions. Uh, and maybe we, as God's people, are also learning slowly, certainly this is what God is teaching us by his spirit, that life works best when we live according to the maker's instructions. Instructions. God's will for us isn't arbitrary or harsh. He created us. He knit each of us together in our mother's wombs. He knows us intimately. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our deepest needs and our fears and our longings. And he speaks his law into our lives. He reveals his will for us in the context of that knowledge and love. And so God's will is actually best for us. It's the most healthy, most life-giving, most joy-filled way to live. And part of what God will teach us by his spirit as we continue to trust in him is that there's a wonderful freedom in living according to his will revealed to us in his word. And so Peter says, whoever has suffered in his body is done with sin. What about you? Are you done with sin? Have you turned your back on it? Verse 3, Peter says of chapter 4, you've spent enough time in the past, haven't you, doing what the pagans choose to do? living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies and carousing and detestable idolatry. You see what he's encouraging us to do? Think about your past sins. I don't want to take you here for too long, but think about your past sins. Where did they lead you? What fruit did they bear? What benefit did you get from it? The path of sin leads you only to shame and to guilt and ultimately to death. You spent enough time in the past doing that kind of stuff. So be done with it, Peter says. And so if you find yourself continuing to struggle with sins from the past, one of the things to do is to ask yourself, what promise is this sin making to me? That's how sin gets at, it, at us, isn't it? It makes us lying promises. That's how sin got to Adam and Eve. Just eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you'll be like God. It'll make you wise. Your eyes will be opened. And so the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and appealing to the eyes and also desirable for making her wise. And so she took some and she ate and she gave some to her husband who was also with her and he ate. You see, sin makes these lying promises and we buy them. <laughs> we think that the sin is going to give us more joy, more satisfaction, more freedom. Just shade that truth a little bit and you'll protect your, record, your, your uh, reputation. Just indulge that one lustful look and you'll be satisfied. Just slander that person just this once 
and you'll feel better about yourself. You'll, you'll prop yourself up over against them. They're lying promises that sin makes to us. And when we buy them, sin leads us, like it led Adam and Eve, into guilt and shame and ultimately death. And so Peter says, be done with sin. You've spent enough time in the past doing that kind of stuff, what the pagans choose to do. God is teaching you a better way, the way of living according to his will. Verse 2. But the people around us don't understand. They don't know our Heavenly Father. They don't understand that his way is better. They're lost in darkness and so they're surprised, verse 4 of chapter 4, they're surprised you don't join them in their reckless, wild living. And sometimes they even heap abuse on you. But they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They're mistaken. They'll tell you that there's more life, more joy, more satisfaction, more fun in living that way. But they're wrong. They don't realise that our Heavenly Father is also our judge. And we're to be conformed to his holiness, as Peter said back in chapter 1. And so this is the good life to which God calls us. Submission to authorities and obedience to God's will where there's life and joy and satisfaction in abundance. And of course we can't leave without noticing that the good life that God calls us to also includes, above all, love. We saw it yesterday in chapter 1. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. We've skipped over it just now in chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And here it is again in chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. This is Christian Living 101, isn't it? But maybe like me, you need a bit of a refresher, a reminder. This love can take many forms. Be sympathetic with each other, Peter says. Remember that your brother and sister in Christ is weak and struggling and broken like you. So have sympathy with each other. Forgive one another. That's another form of love. Peter says, be compassionate and humble. Let your love cover over a multitude of sins. You've always got that option, don't you, when somebody sins against you to overlook the offence? And that's the best way, if you can, to overlook the offence. I'm trying to teach my kids this all the time. Yes, what they did was wrong, but you can let it go, can't you? You can let it go. Love covers over a multitude of sins. It's true we can't do that all the time. Sometimes the sin against us is grave and serious and we can't overlook it. We need to confront the person and ask them to repent and be ready to forgive them when they do. That's there. But love covers over a multitude of sins. So if we can, we'll overlook our brother and our sister's sin, won't we? And move on. And if we need to, we'll raise it with them. But we'll do the work that we need to do first so that we're ready to forgive when they repent. Love takes many forms, sympathy with each other, forgiving one another, showing hospitality to one another. Without grumbling. There's the challenge. Yes, okay, we'll have them over for dinner. 
But boy, it cost 80 bucks for all that food. <laughs> you said that? Yes, okay, we'll have them over for dinner, but I'm going to have to clean the, clean the house and, and pack away the toys. And... It's very easy to exercise hospitality with grumbling, isn't it? And yet here's love showing hospitality without grumbling, welcoming people into our homes and into our lives, sharing our things with them. Because we're brothers and sisters in Christ and that's what we do. And using whatever gifts we have received from the Lord to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, whether it's speaking or whether it's serving, however God has made each of us and he's made each of us individually different as a gift to the church, we throw ourselves in, serving our brothers and sisters. That's love too. This really is Christian living 101, isn't it? Jesus himself said that it's by your love for each other that the world will know that you are my disciples. This is the most basic, the most distinctive mark of the Christian community. When people look in at the church, what they're meant to see above all is love. The love of sympathy and forgiveness and hospitality and service and sacrifice for the other's good. But this love is not just for believers. Like God's love, which overflows even to his enemies, the love to which God calls us is meant to pour into the church from the Father by the work of his Spirit in our lives and swish around in here for a while and then overflow because there's just too much of it. We're called to love not only those inside but also those outside. In fact, this is part of what God has called us to. Did you notice twice in chapters 2 and 3, Peter speaks about how we're to respond to those who are rough with us, who are rude with us, who persecute us and who tease us. And he talks about it in terms of what we are called to do. Chapter 2, verse 21. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. There's love for the enemy. When he suffered, he made no threats. There's love for his enemies. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so in the same way, uh, Peter writes uh, over in chapter 4, finally all of you, no, sorry, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, finally all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, and do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, Repay evil with a blessing. There's love. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, you see, part of God's plan is to conform us to the image of Jesus, to make us like his son. And so he leads us through difficulty and suffering. Yes, sometimes he even leads us into persecution and pressure so that we can learn how to respond like Jesus, so that we can give a blessing when we're cursed so that we can repay evil not with evil but with good so that we can pay insults not with more insults and threats but with love there's a challenge isn't there and yet that's to what we've been called I always need to remember that other people have done this well uh, to be inspired to live this kind of way when I'm, I feel like getting grumpy with people who are being rude to me <laughs> 
one of the examples that stands out in my mind was several years ago I was at a conference uh, where they had a guy called Minkawe uh, up on the stage being interviewed. It was a Billy Graham uh, evangelistic conference years ago. Uh, and Minkawe began to tell his story. Uh, he's an old guy. He said, I was one of the men in 1957 who speared Jim Elliott and Nathaniel Saint. I don't know if you know that story, it's a, uh, years and years ago now, but a bunch of American missionaries went to the Waldani tribe in Ecuador and were seeking to reach them with the gospel. Uh, they made lots of little uh, attempts to, to break through, uh, to, to get to know the people in the tribe, uh, and the tribe became threatened, and they killed them. Uh, and here's this guy on the stage saying, I was one of those who killed Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. And, and as he told a bit more of the story... He explained what had happened, which was that Jim Elliott's wife and Nate Saint's sister had gone and, and continued to reach out to the same tribe who had killed their husbands. <laughs> Incredible. And they got to know some of the women and they shared their lives with them and they shared the good news with them and the women came to be saved and they shared the news with their husbands and the tribe was saved. And then they called up onto the stage this guy, stage this guy called Steve Saint, who was Nate Saint's son. And he said, I've been working alongside Minkawe for the last 10 years. The guy who killed his father. <laughs> it's just incredible overflowing love uh, of these couple of families to this tribe who killed them, which saw them one for Christ, that kind of love. Uh, you, you see, they're walking in Jesus' steps. They're following his example. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and he let the love of God overflow. And there's the calling for us as well. We're not facing that kind of extreme situation, are we? But when people are rude to us at work, when they insult us, when they perhaps marginalise us, how are we going to respond? Are we going to respond to insults with insults and threats with threats? Or are we going to follow in the steps of Jesus? Are we going to let his love overflow through us, even to our enemies? So this is the good life, isn't it? The good life to which God calls us in his word. The good life for a church under fire. Humble submission to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to those whom he has put in authority. Repentance from sin and obedience to his will that is revealed to us in his word. And above all, love for each other, the kind of love that swishes around in the church and overflows to those outside, even to our enemies. It's simple. Three words. Submission, obedience, love. But I hope you can also see it's radically counter-cultural. And when you live like that, people will begin to notice and they'll begin to ask questions and that's exactly how God designed it to be. And so that brings me to my second main point here on the outline, uh, which is much briefer. That God has saved us to live good lives and so point others to the one who is truly good. I said yesterday, this has always been God's plan. Uh, he called Israel to himself and the nations were meant to look in on Israel and say, how they live in there, it's weird, but it's good. Let me in. And so the world around is meant to look in on the church and say, how they live in there, their submission to authorities, their obedience to God's will, their love for each other. It's weird. It's not how we do things out here, but it's good. I want in. 
And God has designed it like that, that people should notice the lives of his people and ask questions. Why do you live like that? That's exactly where Peter picks up on it in chapter 3, verse 13. Verse 13. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter is here, from the language he uses, speaking to a formal legal court situation. These are Christians being dragged before the authorities to explain their behaviour, to explain why they don't participate in the pagan cults, why they don't worship the Roman God. And, and Peter says in that situation, be prepared to give an answer when they interrogate you in court. And yet we can apply it to ourselves as well, can't we, in less extreme situations. And you see what Peter is assuming, it's that when we live God's way, it will stand out. People will notice. And maybe not straight away, but eventually. At some point, those in whom God is at work to save will ask some questions about the hope that you have. Why do you always speak so respectfully about the boss when everyone else is slandering him behind his back? I've noticed that. I know you come out with us for drinks on Friday night, but I've noticed you never drink too much. What's going on there? Tell me about it. The way your church community looks out for each other, it, boy, it's really something. I've been watching you guys over the last couple of years and, well, I've been in clubs and social groups, but, but I've never seen anything like this. Those are the conversations that our lives are meant to provoke as we live in submission to authorities and obedience to God's will and in love for each other and those around. And so I'll close with a beautiful example that we saw of this, I had the privilege of seeing in, in our church in Hornsby uh, this year. Uh, we started out as a new church plant a year ago, last February and about three weeks in we had a couple from mainland China turn up on Sunday morning. They'd arrived in the country on Wednesday, they googled church in Hornsby, they'd found us and they turned up on Sunday <laughs> and they were there every week for the rest of the year. And as we got to know them, Violet told us this story about how God had saved her in China. They were running a textile business, they got into serious difficulty, they needed they major cash flow issues she called up all of her family and friends. They didn't have the bank infrastructure in the part of China where they were that they could get a loan. So they called up all their family and friends asking for a loan, looking for about $100,000. And nobody could help. She went through every contact she had and she called someone she hadn't seen for 15 or 20 years. And this lady said, yeah, sure, I can help. I'll lend you the money. If you can pay me back when you get back on your feet, that's okay. But if you can't, don't worry about it. It's yours consider it a gift. But I do have one condition. I want to start sending you texts. Violet said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this lady, having been saved 15 years before, after Violet knew her, started sending her a just a Bible verse every day for a year. Another Bible verse. Another Bible verse. Another Bible verse. Until Violet called her up and said, what is going on here? <laughs> Tell me about this. And so she explained the good news to Violet. And in the context of that incredible overflowing love and generosity, Violet was open to the good news that this lady shared with her and she was saved. David wasn't convinced. They packed up their business, they came to Australia, they landed on our doorstep at church. Uh, Violet brings him along. 
And David, first week, he says, look, I know nothing about the Christian faith, uh, apart from the very little that Violet has told me in the last few months. But I'm really open. Tell me more. <laughs> Why? Because of the love of that woman, the witness of her life. And so we welcomed him in. We did just the kind of things that any church would do. There's nothing particularly special about our church. People invited him to their homes. People helped him uh, find, get into the TAFE course. Uh, people lined him up with casual work. You know, people just kind of welcomed him into the community, welcomed him into the church. Our minister met with him each week and did Christianity Explored. And with six, within six months, he made a profession of faith. Because God was at work in him by his spirit. But how? through the lives of his people, just doing their thing, living the good life to which God has called us. You see, this is the message of 1 Peter 2 and 3 and 4. You're not saved by your good works, but yes, we're saved for the good life of submission to authorities and obedience to God's will and of love for each other and even our enemies. Have it, I pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your teaching to us through the Apostle Peter and the vision that you give us through him of the good life. Heavenly Father, we have to confess that it's not the life that we in our sinful state would have imagined to be good. And yet as you teach us through your word and as you soften us by your spirit, we're beginning to see more and more that this is good. And so we pray that you would continue your work in us by your spirit, that you would continue to conform us to the image of Jesus and make us more and more like him, and especially that you would teach us to submit to those that you have placed in authority over us, to obey your, your will as you speak to us in your word, and that you would stir up in us the kind of love for each other that you have shown us first. And make it, please, Lord, the kind of love that will overflow to those around us, even to our enemies. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.